You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church in Midlothian, Texas. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, visit Stonegate-Church.com. Okay, uh, Ephesians chapter 5. Let me get into that text uh, through this sort of a route. In 1983, Ronald Reagan made the third Monday in January uh, a holiday celebrating Martin Luther King Jr., and, uh, and all of his work in civil rights and what happened in the late 60s. And, and so we have taken that third, uh, that weekend, Martin Luther King Jr. weekend, uh, and the kind of the, the what's around that, and just take that Sunday, and we try to use that Sunday to hold up issues of race, uh, where reconciliation and strife, you know, reconcil- strife is, reconciliation needs to be, our hopes for diversity and for a diverse church family. Uh, we just take it that weekend to hold up that, those sort of issues and those sort of hopes and desires. And we do that for a couple of reasons. I wanna just explain those reasons as we jump into our text in Ephesians chapter five. Uh, there's really two main reasons that we're doing that. One is a theological reason. Um, it's because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. If you read Ephesians chapter two, it's impossible to get around that Jesus in his life, death and resurrect, uh, res, uh, resurrection takes people who are far from him and brings them into his family, brings them near. And then he takes those people who are near and he's got this desire and he died to accomplish it to get all of these dividing walls that have a tendency to separate these people that he's brought near. He takes all those dividing walls and eradicates them so that those people he has brought near can one, enjoy him. And secondly, they can begin to enjoy one another. Jesus died to accomplish that. Now, when you think about issues like um, we wanna be a diverse church family, We wanna be used by God for the sake of racial reconciliation. We wanna be very clear. Those are not the gospel of Jesus Christ, right? They're not that, but they flow from the life, death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. They're intimately connected to it. If you take the gospel of Jesus Christ and you look what fruit should grow out of that, issues like this should grow directly out of the life, death and resurrection of Jesus. How we either deal with or don't deal with this issue either mars or makes the gospel look beautiful right Think about Revelation chapter five verses nine and ten in that passage. It says, and they, these people who are gathered around the throne of Jesus in heaven, and they sing a new song saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you, Jesus, were slain. And by your blood, Jesus, you ransomed people for God from every tribe and every language and every people and every nation. And you have made them a kingdom and uh, and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. When you think about why Jesus died, one of the answers to to that question would go like this. Jesus died to create a multicolored heaven. Heaven, a a heaven made up of every shade, of every ethnicity, of all nations. You know, I I just love to periodically let my heart ponder what heaven's gonna be like. And I just love allowing my heart to settle into heaven is going to be a place where there is no racial strife, There's no more misunderstandings. There's no lack of empathy. There's no lack of forgiveness. There's no lack of owning our own sin. There's no more talking past each other. Rather, it's going to be a place where all wrongs are righted. It's gonna be a place where the rough ice of strife melts into an ocean of peace. That's what's in front of us. That's in the future for every son and daughter of God. You know, it's interesting when when we follow Jesus' lead and pray for, for God's kingdom to come now, when we pray that, 
When we follow the Lord's prayer and we pray, God, would your kingdom come? Part of what we are praying when we pray for the kingdom of God to come is for more of that multicultural gathering around Jesus in heaven forever to be seen in the church of Jesus Christ today. That's part of what we're praying for in that moment. So there's a theological reason. The theological reason is because the, the good news of Jesus pushes us toward that and leads us toward that. But there's also a very practical reason. And the practical reason is that this issue is inescapable for our church. We don't have the option to think about it or not. If we're gonna be faithful in our context, we're gonna have to do a lot of thinking and working in this area. Think, think about it on a national level for just a moment. Uh, today, minorities make up roughly a third of the U.S. population. So if you just take the entire U.S. population, roughly a third. That 30% is expected to grow uh, by, or a little over 50%, 50 by 2042, in the next roughly 25 years. By 2023, in the next five or so years, minorities will make up more than half of all children in the U.S., right? So nationally, that's where this thing is headed. But then think locally for a moment. There was a group of people at the University of Virginia who took the, the information from the 2010 census uh, of the U.S. and then they charted every person in the U.S. You can look it up, uh, you can Google racial.map and you'll find it. They, they charted every person across the country, uh, so every person in the U.S., and they color-coded them by race. And so in, in that, you've got blue, uh, you know, the, a blue dot equals a white person, a green dot equals an African-American, orange dot, Hispanic, reds, Asian, brown, it's just kind of the everything else that makes up our country. And it's so informative for so many different reasons. It's so interesting to look at the, the, the layout of cities and see how policies in the, in, you know, in the, in the mid-1900s determined how people live and where people live in a city. You see clearly defined boundaries that are still in place that have their roots in the 30s and 40s and 50s. Um, but, but in particular for our area, anytime we talk about this, I always just want you to see this. So this, this is a map of our area. This is the South Dallas area. Midlothian's down there in the little circle on, on the bottom. And I just wanna put that up there. I'm gonna leave that up there for a few minutes just for you to, to, to glance up at. I put that up there for all of us to deal with, with this reality. In Midlothian right now, there are a lot of blue dots, right? There's a lot of blue in Midlothian. But it is inescapable when you look at what is around us and, and the demographics around us, it's inescapable uh, to get around that as Midlothian grows from roughly 25,000 right now on its way to 65 to 90,000 in our future, it's inescapable that there are going to be a lot of green and, and orange dots in Midlothian over time. That is just a part of the picture of the future of our city. It's a part of how suburban sprawl is about to work in, in our area. So, so that is happening. Now with that, it's important that we all come to recognize this. The goal of any church should be to represent their community. Here's where God has us. So we wanna be a church that looks like our community. That's the bullseye. We, we look like our area. Um, and so a church in a lot of ways should just be a sampling. You should walk into a church and see a sampling of what is in that community. Now, here's the sad reality though. Very few churches do that. The vast majority of churches are homogenous. In other words, they are made up of 80% or more of one ethnicity. The vast amount of churches fall into that category. And so now think about the, 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 how this plays itself out. A homogenous church, when, they, when it begins, it does a good job of reaching the community because the community looks like them, 
Like what they are is what the community is, so they do a good job of reaching the community. But as the community begins to grow, what they are in the community, the percentage of that shrinks and what they're not begins to increase. And that leads to this sad moment when a church looks down the road 10 or 15 years and they realize we're still homogenous, but our city isn't. And then it produces this really sad moment when a church begins to realize we're only able to reach the shrinking part of our community that looks like us, not the people that God has added to our community, that the growing percentage that doesn't look like us. And then the sad day comes when that church is forced into the decision. Do we either relocate or do we shut our doors? Now that story right there has played itself out hundreds of times in the Dallas Metroplex. Hundreds of times. And Stonegate, would that not be a tragedy if that were us? Would that not be so sad? We don't, we don't want that for our church family, right? We want something better than that for our church family. So we wanna be a church that as God adds to our, our community and gives us new neighbors, that we as a church can open up our arms and embrace whoever it is that the Lord would entrust to us in our community. That's what we wanna be. A church that looks like our community over the long haul. Now, when you look at that, that racial dot map, let me say one more thing about it. I don't know what feelings rise up in you when you, re, you, know, when you see that. I just want to tell you what rises up in me. When I look at that, I get so excited. And here's why I get so excited. God doesn't give every church the opportunity to do this in this sort of a way. God doesn't do it for everyone. I look at that and I see from the Lord an invitation for our church family it's gonna be hard. It's gonna take a lot of dying for everyone in the room, but there's an invitation from God that says, hey, you're gonna have a unique opportunity, Stonegate. I put you in a unique area where, where your, your community is going to change a lot over time. And you're gonna have this unique opportunity to, to bring the multicultural view of heaven into the church now for the world to see that. You're gonna have that chance, Stonegate. Not every church gets it, but you're gonna have that chance to do that. This particular church family in this particular time and place has that invitation from the Lord in front of us. And when I look at that, I'm just so grateful to God for that. He is inviting us as a church into those sort of things. Now with that, we, we wanna talk about this again today. And I wanna do that out of Ephesians chapter five. And I wanna come at it from a different angle a new angle, and uh, in the first two verses of Ephesians provide the, the, the way and the grid that I want us to see issues of race through. And, and here's what it says. And by the way, there's no way to say everything in a single sermon about something as complex as this. So I'm saying a thing this morning, and I think it's a really needed thing for all of us to wrestle with. Ephesians chapter five, verses one and two. Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Now, this passage, if you're just gonna reduce it to like the simple statement that summarizes it, here's the simple statement that, that gives this, these two verses in a few words. God is saying, as my beloved children walk in love. As my beloved children walk in love. He's reminding us, hey, you're, you're my beloved children. 
So now, my beloved children, I want you to walk in and reciprocate that, that love. Now, the order is vital. One of my favorite things about the book of Ephesians is the way that Ephesians is laid out. It's six chapters, but the first three chapters contain virtually no imperatives, no, no doing. It's all indicatives. Indicatives are statements of facts. So they're all indicatives in the first three chapters. They're all statements about what Jesus has done for us to rescue us. That's the first three chapters full of indicatives. Then you get to the second three chapters and it's full of imperatives, what we're now to do. So first three chapters, what Jesus has done. Second three chapters, now what we're to do. Now in doing that, Paul is intentional and he is showing us in a lot of ways the key to the Christian life. And, and here's the key to the Christian life. The indicatives, what Jesus has done, fuel the imperatives, what we're to do. That's like a massively important thing to see how the Bible talks about our walk with the Lord. The indicatives, what Jesus has done, fuel the imperatives, what we're to do. Maybe you could think of it this way. Our doing, like what we're to do for God, our doing is always preceded by Jesus has done. It's the fuel. Jesus has done is the fuel that enables our doing. Now, what the book of Ephesians shows on a, on a macro level, a big you know, sort of view, this passage puts on a micro level. It kind of brings it down to the ground. And so we start like this, as my beloved children, as my beloved children. But before you're told all of what you're supposed to do, your, your attention is drawn to what has been done. My beloved children, you're drawn in this passage to, to think about and consider the father's deep heart of love for us. We have a dad, that's God. And he loves his kids. We're his beloved kids. This passage is an invitation from God to think about his adopting love. To, to consider that this love that drove God across every line to rescue us. There was no line that he wouldn't cross for, for our rescue. In a sense, this passage is, is, in a way, it's God saying, would you just stop and consider that? That you're my beloved kids? Would you consider that the, the, the extremes that I went to to make you one of my beloved kids, would you stop and consider that I sent my beloved son from the comforts of heaven to the confines of a stable? Would you stop and consider that, that my beloved son strapped on human flesh and he dwelt among you, tasting every temptation that you're so familiar with, all the hardships that you endure? He, he's, he's tasted all of those things, yet he's tasted them all without sin. Would you stop and consider that, that my beloved son put himself in human hands and, and there th those human hands nailed him to a cross and on that cross, I turned my face from my beloved son and there on the cross, all of my wrath for the combined sort of accumulation of this world's sin fell on my beloved son. Can you see the extent that I've gone, the extreme that I've gone to, to show you how beloved you are as my kids? It's an invitation from God to think about on the cross, God the Father wounded his son for our transgressions, that he crushed his son for our iniquities, that he put upon his beloved son the, chastis the chastisement that we deserve. That this is, this is what God the Father has done to show us how loved we are by him. I mean, in, in a sense, God is just reminding us, this is how far I have gone. Just look at the cross where my beloved son tasted the bitter fruit of your sin, death. That's how much I love you. And, and Paul reminds us this in Ephesians 5 verse 2. He says, this is how much Jesus has loved you. 
Here's how much. He loved us by giving himself for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God the Father. And it's now through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus that we're healed, that we're brought near to God, that we're adopted into his family, and that now today, if you're in Christ, you can know you are secure in the love of the Father, that you're his beloved child. I just wonder how many of us need to think about that this morning. Just believe that and let that refresh us all over again. If you're in Christ, God the Father now looks at you and you are absolutely secure in his love. You are his beloved child. He loves you like a, like a good daddy loves his kids. As my beloved children, that, that's the done. That's, that's what's been accomplished for us. But now he, he tells us what we're to do. As my beloved children, walk in love. Be, be imitators of me. Now, now walk in love. Uh, allow that deep, mighty river of love with which I have loved you to now flow out of you and to move you toward other people that, that now you get to love with that same love. Re reciprocate my love, walk in my love. When he's saying walk in my love, that, that's a way of saying, let my love, that the same love with which I have loved you, allow that love to saturate your life. Allow it to dominate your life, to dominate your days. That, that dying love, that giving love, that self-sacrificing love with which I have loved you, walk in that. Make that the consistent theme of your life. Now, th this command to walk in love is really taking us to the heart of what God wants for, not just from, but for every one of his followers. He wants us to walk in love. He, he wants that for us because it leads us to joy. It leads us to him. He wants that for us. Love in the Bible is no secondary issue. But when you see that the idea of love in the scriptures, it is a primary issue. It runs throughout the scripture. That love is used over 800 times in the Bible. It is a big deal in the Bible. Let me just give you a sampling of some of how the Bible talks about it. In 1 John chapter 4, verse 8, it says this, God is love. When you cut the triune God down to the core, what you find at the core of God is a heart bursting forth with love. You see that play out in creation. You see that play out in the incarnation where God the Father sends his beloved son to come and rescue us. You see it play out on the cross where Jesus died in our place and for our sin, right? This is what you find deep down in the heart of God. Now, what is love? Here's a working definition for you. Love is willing self-sacrifice for the good of another that does not demand reciprocation or that the person being loved is deserving. Love is willing self-sacrifice. Love moves us to willingly, just a posture of, I'm gonna give of myself. I'm gonna impoverish myself. I'm going to spend myself. For what? For the good of another. Not just for my good am I gonna impoverish me, but I'm gonna, I'm gonna impoverish myself, give myself, sacrifice myself for the good of another without demanding that that person deserve it without demanding that they reciprocate every good thing that I do for them. Love is this willing self-sacrifice for the good of another that does not demand reciprocation or that the person being loved is deserving. Or as Jesus said it in John 15, 13, greater love is no one than this, that someone lay down his life, sacrifice his life for his friends. It's this willing self-sacrifice. Now, let me be clear. Love is not the only attribute of God, right? 
So that's, that needs to be heard because in our culture, we love to reduce God down to that is the only thing God is. That's not his only attribute. Uh, love isn't. You're going to find much more in the heart of God. But when you get all the way down into the depths of God's heart, what you find is a heart bursting forth with love. Now, in light of that, it's no surprise that when Jesus takes all the 613 Old Testament laws, it's no surprise when he's condensing all 613 of those down that he condenses them like this in Matthew chapter 22. And he said to them, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. All 613 laws boil down to this. Love God, love other people. This is why Paul in Galatians chapter five, verse 14, summarizes it like this. He, he says it this way, for the whole law is fulfilled in one word. Here's the one way that Paul says you can describe and sum up the entire uh, Old Testament system of laws. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now look at that word or those, that phrase as yourself. When Jesus says to love your neighbor as yourself, he is not saying you should love yourself more. He is assuming that you already love yourself plenty. He knows that we love some us, right? He knows that I love me. He knows that you love you, right? He, he knows that that is the basic default wiring of a human being. So he's assuming self-love. So, so what he's inviting us to do when he says, love your neighbor as yourself, he's inviting us to look at the ways that we have loved ourselves. Think about all the ways you love you. Think about the way you prioritize you. Think about the way that you fight for your rights, that you demand that you be listened to, that you make sure your needs are met. Think about all the ways that you love you. And then Paul is saying, now, after you think about all the ways that you love you, look at your neighbor and love them like that. Is that not amazing? How is that even, how is that humanly, it's not humanly possible. That like takes God doing something inside of our souls to unlock all of our selfish sort of, you know, coverings that we live with. That takes a supernatural act of God. When, when he says, love your neighbor as yourself, he is saying this, I want you to meet the needs of others with all the energy, all the delight, all the creativity, all the consistency with which we meet our own. And just think on that. I want you to love your neighbor like that. In John 13, Jesus raises the bar of love even higher when he says this, I want you to love others, not just as, as you love yourself, but I want you to love your neighbor as I have loved you. It doesn't get any higher than that, does it? Jesus saying, I want you to love those around you like I have loved you. I want you to meet the needs of others with all the energy, all the delight, all the creativity, all the consistency with which I have met yours. In John, in, in John 13, we learned that that should be the mark of a Christian. In John 13, 35, Jesus says this, by, all uh, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Isn't that amazing? Jesus is saying, hey, I'm giving permission for the world to judge the authenticity of your faith by how you love one another, by how you love your neighbor. I I'm giving them I'm giving them the right to judge that based on love. Love is no secondary issue in the scriptures. Think about 1 Corinthians 13. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 13, if I speak in the tongues of men and angels, but if not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. 
If I give away all that I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. This is how one pastor put it. He said, in these familiar words, we possess one of the most central principles of the Christian faith. And it's this, no religious act is of any value in God's sight if it does not accompany and flow from love. Not self-love, but Christian love, like a love of God and a love of other people. I mean, just think about what you did last week and ask yourself the question. And think about the good things you did. The, I mean, just think about all you did the last week. If, if, that, if those good things didn't spring from a heart of love, Paul is saying here, in the end, they're just not gonna mean anything. They're just gonna be worthless in the end. You're gonna have gained nothing in the end. What, what does this sort of sacrificial love, this neighbor love look like? Paul tells us in verse four, he just shows us, he, he's just giving us some descriptions on what love looks like as it's played out between human beings. He says, love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It's not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It's not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, it believes all things, it hopes all things, it endures all things. It gives the benefit of the doubt, it assumes the best, it hangs in there. And then he finishes in verse 13 by saying, so now faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. If I have to pick, he's saying, love is gonna win. Now, why is this important? Several years ago, Anne Rice made this observation in an interview. She said, Christians have lost credibility in America as a people who know how to love. Isn't that something? That Christians have lost credibility in America as a people who know how to love. And I, you know, I've seen those who claim the name of Jesus just go to war with one another enough to know that we shouldn't be quick to, to dismiss that critique. And now to apply it just more directly to the issues around race, I've been around enough conversations about race to know that those conversations have a way of taking us to a line that love oftentimes, our love just oftentimes just can't cross over. It just refuses to move past. That so many times for us, when we get to these issues, there's, there's this line there and our love gets right up to the line, but we just, we just can't go, we just can't get past it. We just hang on this side of us and our love just won't cross that line. If you want an example of that, um, maybe you could think of it this way. You know, in everyday life, racial pressure has a way of existing like about an inch under the surface and then something will happen. It'll be another thing soon, but something will happen that will bore into that pressure and another moment's going to erupt. That's just alerting us that something is lurking under the surface when that happens. So it's lurking under there when the next thing erupts. Uh, just do this for me. Just go to Facebook and look at your feed. And I want you to ask the question, what do I see there? What is visible as I'm reading these things? And I think what you'll find is a lot of anger, plenty of frustration, a ton of fiery thoughts. But just ask yourself the question, how much of the love of Jesus do I see there? How much do I see there? 
How much do I see the descriptions of that love in 1 Corinthians 13? How much of that patience, that sort of kindness, that, that not being rude, but this gentleness that I have, how much of that sort of, I'm not irritable, but I'm very hard to offend. How much of that do you see there? And just personally think about this and your own opinions about race and what the problems are, what the problems are, what, what you should do, what you shouldn't do, what that person should do, what that person should think, what they shouldn't think. Just lay Ephesians 5, 1 and 2 over it and ask yourself this question. Are you walking in love? Can, can people see the love of Jesus in the way that you're interacting with this issue? Now, here's the way I wanna just spend the rest of our time together is I wanna, I wanna just walk through a few ways, five ways that, that we can walk in love as we pursue racial reconciliation. Five ways that we can walk in love. Here's way number one. We, we can walk in love by owning our sin. L love owns sin. Now I wanna put one extra statement behind it. Even the sins of those who have gone before us. Love owns sins, even the sins of those who have gone before us. I mean, part of how love is expressed to Jesus and other people is by owning and repenting of sin. Think if you're married in the room, or you just have to be a friend of somebody in the room. Think about how love is seen in the context of a marriage or a friendship. It's seen by when I have wronged you, I own my wrong. I repent of that wrong. I seek to change in that area. That's part of how love is expressed between people. Now, this is also true in the area of race and the issues around race. You know, when you look at the particular history of the, of the United States, it's impossible for me, it's just inescapable for me to, to come to any conclusion but that the weight of sin that has been done and committed falls on the white side of the, of the coin. So it's just impossible for me to escape that reality when you look back over our country's history. Now, from that though, I think another thing needs to be said. P part of how that sin has played itself out is we've gotten into like a cycle of sin where one people's sin done that way then produces another people's sin done this way, then produces another people's sin done that way, which produces another people's sin done that way, and you find yourself in this cycle of, this, uh, of sin. So on all sides, and that would lead us to say, so to all sides of the racial sort of issue, there's just, there's gonna be plenty to own. There's definitely an historic weight, but within, you know, within that weight, there's, there's plenty of sin for all of us to own. So, so as we're, we're loving in, in this issue and pursuing racial reconciliation, love owns sin. Whatever part we played, it, it owns those things. Now, let me put the, the next phrase in there. And it owns the sins of those who have gone before us. So here's what's interesting about being born in any particular time and place. You're born into a culture. And that culture is going to have a way of discipling all of us. It's just a part of, of how culture works. Culture is a great discipler of all of us. And because we're American and because we are Westerners, here is one way that we have all been discipled. It's in individualism. It's just the air we breathe. It's so, it's so consistently just taught to us that we just, we can't help but, but not have it in our system. Now that individualism makes part of what I'm saying resonate. We need to own our sin. I think it, it makes that, a, a, that thought makes sense to us. But it also fights against the second part of that. We should own even the sins of those who have gone before us. Individualism doesn't like that. It, it just can't even see how we would own a sin that we didn't physically commit or, or do. 
How we would even think about confessing and owning sin that was somebody done by somebody we never even met. Our individual just can't hardly, it just doesn't have a category for that. But here's the problem. The Bible does. Because the Bible doesn't have an individualistic lens that it's looking through. So as an example of that, think about Daniel chapter 9. Daniel has gathered the people of God together and he is confessing sin. And he starts with his own sin. Then he gets to the people that are present. He confesses their sin to the Lord. But then the strange thing happens. He goes back generations and confesses the sins of his forefathers. This is like the way the Bible plays itself out as we're confessing sin, especially in something like this that has such historic roots in it. John Perkins, he was, he was born in 1930. He's an African-American. He was a part of the civil rights uh, movement with Martin Luther King Jr. He's, an, he's a, I love this guy. He, he just wrote his last book. He's, he's 88 this year. And he just wrote his last book called Dream With Me. And I just, I, I read it this year and it's, uh, it was such a, such a good thing for me to read. It just has an aroma of love just baked into the book. And, and this is a guy who his brother was killed by the police in the 50s. He was arrested for protesting in the 50s, taken into a jail cell, tortured in that jail cell between uh, swigs of whiskey. He had a fork jabbed up his nose. This is John Perkins, who now just, he just has such a sweet aroma of love about him. Listen to what he says. We haven't fully exercised this demon from from our nation's soul. And until we do, our best strategy is to repent. When confession comes out of our mouths, sin is forgiven and room is made for love to come into our hearts. I love that. I think he's spot on with that. And so could we just have a moment together where we do that? Would you just, would you bow your heads there with me? And I just wanna give you a moment to ask the Lord for clarity. Are there, is there anything that you would need to own personally? that perpetuates these sort of problems? Any, anything, anything that the Lord would convict you of personally? And then have you ever just looked back and, and owned what you need to own from forefathers? Confess that. And Father, I just, I wanna do that this morning. God, I wanna own how for so much of my life I have lived unaware of these things, blinded with a hard heart toward them. So much of my life, there's just been a failure to even consider listening, to want to try to understand. And God, I'm sorry for that. God, I confess that and ask for your forgiveness of that. And God, there is so much as we look back in our country's history that it's just, it's so shameful and terrible for the sins done by my forefathers. And God, we confess those things to you, that their blindness we confess to you, that their, their rebellion we confess to you, their hardness of heart in this particular issue we confess to you. And God, we just pray that you would bring from the ashes something really beautiful. God, that you would mend so much of what we have broken. So God, would you do that? It's in your good name we ask that. Amen. Love owns sin. Love also forgives. Love forgives. 
You know, when you think about one of the ways that God has loved you, one way is by sending Jesus to a cross where Jesus was forsaken so that we could be forgiven. This is one of the ways that, that God loves us. And Jesus on the cross is modeling what forgiveness always requires. And here it is. This is what forgiveness always requires. It requires suffering. You'll never forgive another human being without first embracing, I'm gonna suffer to do it. Su suffering is, is embedded into forgiveness. See, when, when you forgive a person, they have wronged you or wounded you and everything in you wants to punch back and wound them back. And forgiveness is the moment of you saying, I'm not going to punch back. I'm gonna take their wound and, and rather than giving them a wound in return, I'm going to absorb that wrong and that wound myself. And that, that's a moment of suffering when, when, you, when you absorb that wound and when you cancel that sort of a debt. And when you look back, there's just a million things that need forgiveness, right? I mean, they're just too many to number. Listen to John Perkins as he describes this. He says, in America, it's pretty safe to say that blacks and whites and other ethnic groups represented have all sinned against one another. So all parties need to repent and all parties need to forgive. This is the only way out of the hostility. I wanna say that again, forgiveness, He's saying this is the only way out of the hostility and division we have long accommodated. Anytime a relationship is broken, there's really only one way out. Repentance and forgiveness is the only way out of those things. And this is what love does. It repents, it owns sins, and it, and it forgives. And so let me just ask you the question this morning. Is there any relationship right now in your life where you are harboring resentments and bitternesses? and forgiveness needs to be applied. So you can think about it in particular to racial issues, but more widely, are there any relationships in your life where that is there? And I'm just asking you this morning, let's collectively take a step forward in that today. Let's make a decisive step toward forgiveness today. Love owns sins, love forgives. Thirdly, love pursues friendship across all lines. The love of God showed itself in the pursuit of friendship across every sort of line out there. He came for friendship across the immoral line, across the line of those who are oppressors, of those who are the oppressed, of the Jews, of the Gentile. There's just, there's not a line out there that Jesus didn't cross in order to secure a friendship. This is part of how Jesus loved us. And it's one way that we can walk in the love of Jesus. The more I'm in issues of race and, and how these things play out, the more I've just come back to over and over again that for so many of us, the starting place will be when you have a good friendship across racial lines. That that'll be the, that'll be the moment and that'll be the place where things you haven't seen begin to kind of unwind and you begin to see differently and think differently and have more empathy. It just, friendships are such a massively important part of this. And I just, I, I, wanna, I wanna ask you, will you please pursue friendships like this this year across racial lines? Now, I'm not saying racial reconciliation has to be the number one emphasis of everyone's life in this room. I'm not saying that. But I am asking you to make it an emphasis of your life. And here's the reason I'm asking you to make it an emphasis. If you don't have it as an emphasis, what's gonna naturally happen is you're gonna do what, what people naturally do. And what people naturally, just kind of by nature do is group with people who are like them, economically like them, 
racially like them, socially like them, that are just like them. That's, that's how, that's a default kind of human setting. And I'm gonna ask you to be intentional, to make it an emphasis of your life where you are proactively pursuing friendships with people who aren't like you, racially, socially, economic, in all those sort of ways. They don't, they don't think and see like you do. You know, when you think about our goal with the diversified church family, that does not mean our goal stops at we want a diversified Sunday morning gathering for an hour and a half. That's not the end goal. The end goal is that we would all have diversified dinner tables, diversified friendships. I mean, think about the last six months in your life. Think about who you have had inside of your home and ask yourself the question, is there anyone that has been inside my home who looks different, thinks differently, sees the world differently than me? Have you gone across racial lines over the last year in inviting someone into your home? And if the answer is no to that, I just want to implore you. Man, it's an invitation from God to change that over the next year. So let's make some steps together in that over the next year. Love pursues across all lines. Number four, love listens. Love listens. Do you remember the story of Exodus? It's such an interesting passage. In Exodus chapter two, the people are suffering and they cry out to God. And do you remember what it says in Exodus two? It says, the Lord heard their cry. He heard their cry. But part of how God loves us is by listening to us. Listening is an act of love. But here's all of our problem in the room. When we come to any moment, we have a default setting in our heart. And do you know what the default setting is? I demand that you hear me. That's the default setting that we all work with. The default setting is not, let me be a good listener. The default setting is, you be a good listener as you listen to me. That's the default setting. But, but love changes that setting. Love moves us to lay down our demands of being heard. And it moves us toward people with an open heart, ready to listen. L love does that. Love produces in us a curious heart so that when we are in a conversation and they see something much different than we see something, like that, we just, we just can't understand how we're looking at the same thing and just see it so much differently. It produces in us a curious heart that doesn't just shut the conversation down and end it. And this is like my MO for years. That's just where the conversation ended, right? And, but, but love keeps us in there. It makes us curious. Why is that? Why do we see those things differently? What has shaped you to see this that way? And what has shaped me to see it this way? Now, I love how John Perkins talks about this. He says, both sides are yelling too loudly to listen to one another. I'm gonna read that one one more time. Both sides are yelling too loudly to listen to one another. We've lost our ability to hear or understand one another. We remain separated and aloof, each failing to, re uh, to relate to the agony of the other's pain and both adamantly resisting what God requires, repentance and forgiveness. Now in my life, I've had way more swings and misses in this area than I have like made contact. I mean, I, I'm not proud when I think back about my life in terms of how well I've listened. But one moment that I'm just particularly thankful for was a moment with Valentine and I about five years ago. Valentine was a church planting resident that's recently planted in, uh, planted in Cedar Hill. And uh, we were processing uh, the moment with Michael Brown. And, uh, and so we both just had a moment of like, I'm gonna tell you, Valentine, what my gut reaction is. Would you please tell me yours? And let's talk about that. And we both threw ours out there. And you know what was amazing about it? They could not be more polar opposite. And I'm just so thankful in that moment that God gave us a big enough heart in that moment to hang in there and to fight through that. 
that we could both be curious. And you know what that's done for me? It's given me empathy. I, I no longer dis, dismiss that difference. I, that, that's rooted in things. Like I've been shaped to see some things a certain way. He's been shaped to see some things a certain way. And now I just have so much more grace and empathy for why it is we can look at the same thing and see it differently. And, and here, you know, when I think about the church, this is what grieves me. Historically, the church hasn't been a safe place for that. And that's a shame, isn't it? And I think we would all agree that the church should be a safe place for that. I mean, the church should be the safest place in the world for people who don't know each other very well to get to know each other really well. For people who see things much differently to work out the what's and why's of that so that there can be empathy and a lot of grace extended about those differences. The church should be that. And, and to be that, to be a safe, empathetic, easy to get to know you culture that grows from the soil of humility. And can we just pray for our church that God would give us the humility that we need? Can we just ask the Lord for that? Number five, and we'll finish here. Love seeks justice wherever it sees injustice. This is one of the ways we can walk in love. Love seeks justice wherever it sees injustice. Love and justice are two sides of the same coin. Justice or a desire to right wrongs, a desire to make another person's problems your problems so that they could be fixed. That, that's justice. Justice is what love does when love sees injustice. That makes sense? I mean, when we're loving a person, Justice is what we do when we see injustice. And I'm just praying God would make us a people quick to embrace that and to move toward wrongs that we see with the hope of righting those wrongs. And God reminds us how important this is to him. In Micah chapter six, verse eight, God tells us this. He has told you, O oh man, what is good? And what does the Lord your God require of you? Let I me mean, just think about that. What, what does God want of us? Here it is, but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with our God. Jesus says it this way in Matthew 25, 40, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did to me. Over the last 50 years, we have made a ton of progress with race, but there's still so much to go. And their book, Divided by Faith, which I think is one of the most important books written over the last 15 years to, to read, Divided by Faith. Uh, Christian Smith and, and Michael Emerson, they just do such a convincing job of showing us that we still live in a racialized society, a, a society where, where race matters profoundly for differences in life experiences, life opportunities, and social relationships. That's how they define it. They just do a convincing job of showing that. And as long as that's true, church, you know what that means for us? There's work to do. There's people to love. There's wrongs to right. There's people to show kindness to. There's people to help that there's issues that we need to solve. As long as that's true, there's work for us to do. And I'm gonna close here. Isn't it amazing to think that in all of human history that God saw fit to put you in this time and place? Isn't that amazing to think about? It's an amazing thing to consider. And every time and place that we are born into has defining issues of its day. And because you were born in this particular time and place, you have been, been born, you know, born into a moment that has at least these two defining issues that are inescapable. One is sexuality and the other is race. These are two of the biggest defining issues of our day. Like this is the time and place that you live in. Now, ironically, as the church, with the issue of sexuality, the cultural winds are blowing against us. So it's giving us like this beautiful opportunity for the church of Jesus Christ to hold on to the Bible, 
right? To, to be able to disagree in a way that shows, but our heart for you is love. So, so that's one issue. But the other issue of race, the cultural winds are actually blowing with us right now. It's blowing for the Bible and for the heart of God. And it, it's forcing every church to make a decision. Am I gonna participate in that? Or am I gonna stay clear of that? Can, can, I, can I push myself away from that? Am I, going, am I going to walk through the door that God is providentially opening right now for us, his bride, the church, to walk through? John Perkins, I think, does a great job of capturing the moment. Listen to how he said it. He said, right now, we are at a pivot moment, and we can't allow the moment to pass us. It's the first time in my 85 years, since 1930s, imagine what all he's gone through. It's my first time in 85 years where I see people seeing value in diversity. If I were Isaiah or Jeremiah talking, I, I think they might say it this way. The church is like a woman in labor right at the point of birth. And the question is, will she have the strength to see that the baby is born? This is that moment in history. And I don't know what will happen to us if we shrink back from it. Can you pray with me? I just want to give a moment for the Spirit of God to press into you the things that would be helpful and to wipe away the things that wouldn't be. I'm so grateful this morning that we get to end by taking communion because we are reminded of the, of the never stopping always pursuing across every line imaginable love of God. When you take the bread representing the broken body of Jesus and dip it into the juice, representing the spilled blood of Jesus, Jesus in our place for our sin, love. When we do that, we're being reminded of that love. And let me remind you that Communion is for those who are in relationship with God. So some of us this morning, we need to take Jesus before we take communion. And if that's you, if, if, if this morning needs to be that decisive moment when you push your life in with Jesus, when you hold your life up and say, God, I am trusting Jesus to rescue me. If that's you, we're gonna have people over at the prayer table, some of our pastors, they would love to chat with you and pray with you this morning. But communion is also for those who are in right relationship with Jesus. That means that if there's any known sin in our life, that we lay those down, we repent of those, own those this morning. So, oh God, would you help us today? God, would you be at work in us right now, speaking to us, shaping, molding, convicting, comforting, encouraging, just all the different things that we need in our souls right now. And God, would you help us? We just know that apart from your grace, we're stuck. Apart from you blowing into the life of this church, we're stuck. So, oh God, would you come in? God, would you help us? It's in the beautiful name of Jesus that we pray, amen.
Thank you for listening to this message from Stonegate Church, located in Midlothian, Texas. For service times, additional audio and study resources, as well as information about our church, please visit us at stonegate-church.com.